I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Interview with the Vampire. I want you to say we get started. So you want me to tell you the story of my life? I'll tell you my story. I'll tell you all of it. I'm flesh and blood, but not human. I haven't been human for 200 years. From the novel by Anne Rice. From Neil Jordan, the director of The Crying Game. I've come to answer your prayers. Life has no meaning anymore, does it? His name is Lestat. But what if I could give it back to you? Pluck out the pain and give you another life. One you could never imagine. I can see you lying on a bit of satin. He chose one man. He gave him infinite power. Eternal life. And a daughter who would be forever young. This is the only real evil left. And then he took the light of day. You're a vampire who never knew what life was until it ran out in a red gush over your lips. I can't stand this any longer. You made us what we are, didn't you? If God kills indiscriminately, and so shall we. You like dying? You condemn me to hell! Kirsten Dunst and Christian Slater. Interview with the Vampire. This is a film that was hugely important to Sharon in her teens, and which I also liked a lot back then. Over the years, I've come to engage with it more and more as my kind of vampire film. Gothic, sumptuously costumed and set-dressed, well-written, artfully edited, excellently directed and acted, memorably scored, romantic, melodramatic, philosophical, bloody, sexy, intelligent, soulful, beautiful, and tragic. The framing device is simple. Christian Slater plays a young journalist in the 1990s in San Francisco, and one night he meets a vampire named Louis, played by Brad Pitt, uh, who beckons him up to a vacant room and rather than feeding off him he sits down in front of Daniel and recounts a tale of more than two centuries of existence paying particular attention to the relationships that he maintained with several other vampires he's telling him his long sad tale and there are only a few characters in this movie considering the amount of time it spans and many themes are at play here so we're going to focus on them rather than talking about literal things that happen in the film. It's it's more what it's about and how it's about it. Starting off with Sharon telling us about the Vampire Chronicles books by Anne Rice, which she read when she was younger. Okay. Um, 
So like, uh, off the top of my head, Interview with the Vampire, which she wrote in the late 70s, that's way earlier than I thought. I, I was thinking it was like... 1976 it was yeah. published, but she started writing it in 72, 73. It was shortly after the death of her daughter, oh. Michelle, who... That was, explains so much yeah, about she this. Was, Michelle story. was very young when she died. She died of leukaemia. And so um, the I think she passed away in 1972. And Anne Rice had already written a short story about a vampire, which she decided to develop into a novel which became Interview with the Vampire. The character of Claudia is directly based on Michelle, the idea of a child who would never grow up. And I think there's something about that frame of mind that she was in when she wrote it that you can see in the fact that adult women in this story, and it, it's it's the source material as well as the film. We cannot hold Neil Jordan accountable for all of this, but adult women basically have no power in this film at all, particularly mothers. Yeah, no agency there. They're effectively as prey. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, and we'll talk about this later, but it particularly comes through when we're looking at the vulnerable adult women in society, the sex workers, the poor, the ill. Slaves. Um, slaves, servants, anybody who is in a position of... Of somebody else is controlling your fortunes. Yeah. So that was Interview with a Vampire. It was not well received when it first came out. It was a bit of a niche title anyway. It did get an audience within the LGBTQ community, which again Makes we'll sense, discuss yeah. later. That continued throughout the series as she continued to write them. The Vampire Lestat, which was the second in the series, didn't come out until 1985. So there was quite a Whoa. gap between the first book and the second. And the shift in tone is palpable. Yeah. So The Vampire Lestat is about twice as long as Interview with a Vampire. And it comes from a very different perspective than the story of Louis. And in fact, Louis is reflected on in later books as being this morose whinging character who never appreciated the life that being a vampire brought to him. When you're delighted by Lestat, Louis does seem real. like uh, he turns people off about this film because uh, in Tom Cruise's own words at the end of the film, still whining Louis. Indeed. And that is very much echoing back from the later Vampire Chronicles mm. books. However, the older I've grown, the more I've actually come to to really feel for the guy because he has, as Armand points out later on, a soul. He regrets. That's mm. like the core of his character. So while you might watch the movie and go, Brad Pitt's boring, and Brad Pitt acted in the movie and thought, Brad Pitt's boring. In 2011, he said he was fucking miserable the whole yeah. time because it's all night shoots mm. he spent uh, months and months in darkness and he's like Tom Cruise is over here being all entertaining I'm Brad Pitt trying to get a career and all I get to do is whine and it's like dude you're really undervaluing how great this character is it as is, you become more mature it is a superb performance it is against type for Pitt especially considering where he was in his career dude, at this I, point I saw Legends of the Fall it's not that against no, no, no. type the, 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 okay Okay, up until this point, his tendency had been to play people who were passionate and impulsive, and Louis is very much 
detached. He's an observer. He's very controlled, yeah. rigid. And I think you're absolutely right about the night shoots and the being constantly eclipsed by the presence of crews. Who and there would have does bow out after yeah, Act One. Absolutely. And so, how frustrating would it be when all of the public uh, publicity material was very focused on him? And I say Act One. It's more like Part One. Yeah. Part One, the stat. Part Two. After Lestat. Indeed. Sorry, carry on. All the pub- yeah, all the publicity is about Cruise. Look at the poster of this motherfucker. Yeah. You got Tom Cruise's face. It's enormous. It's like Mount Rushmore. Yeah. And then in the bottom right-hand corner, you've got a hunched figure that you said that's not Brad Pitt. And I was like, it is Brad Pitt. He's just covering his face and really his hands. Close it's like Tom that. went, cover him up, make him look less hot. Well, they they re- they replicate the scene where Claudia is about to bite the woman on the bench in the street. Mm. It actually might be a woman, but they've kind of covered the it a bit to make it actually look like it is it's Louis. Louis. You can tell by the cuffs. Right, okay. Well, either way, Brad Pitt ain't on the poster. And if you were a teenage girl in 1995-ish? 94 was 94, 95. I know, because my sister was a teenage girl at that point. Your wall space, it was like Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt... Rock'em sock'em robots as to who's going to get the most wall space. But this is the other thing. Brad Pitt was a teen idol at this point. Yeah. This film, in the UK at least, was an 18. They were not selling it to appeal mm. to young teenagers. That is true. They kind of cu- uh, cut themselves off at the source there. Uh, after the first screening, the audience were surprised that it was bloody and violent. It's a vampire film! <laughs> I, I'm actually really gratified that they don't scrimp on it when blood comes up. They're like, if you've like, I never liked the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I know everyone loved it. Maybe nowadays they'll be a bit Joss Whedon, but like, it's a vampire show without blood. Okay, well we can't do this. <laughs> like, it's about drinking something you can't see. You can't have gore. You can't have like it's ah. Oh. I'm not saying you have to have blood and gore with vampires, but if you take those things away, you've got to have something really good to follow up. And Buffy had humour and lore and all kinds of characters that people But it should have been called Buffy the Demon Slayer. Yeah. 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 Like, them being... It was obviously based on the movie Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. So... The Vampire Lestat, I actually remember reading that early on in our relationship. You handed it to me and said, skip interview with the vampire. You know the story anyway. Lestat's much more fun. And the first half of the book is Lestat reflecting on uh, how he was made. How the vampire who made him, I actually can't remember that much about it. I think basically he meets an old vampire in Venice. I want to say Magnus. Mm, yeah, something like that. Who makes him into a vampire and then goes, what did it do? I'm leaving. And jumps into the fire. Jumps into the fire. Like, like pretty much the wizard Shazam in Shazam's like, like, okay, I've told you everything you need to know. Bye. Yeah. And Lestat spends the rest of his existence going, dude, what the fuck? You can't just hand me this existence and then vanish. What the hell? So he has this massive abandonment complex that he is effectively trying to resolve. Sorry, I'm just spiking the mic. 
Lestat du Lioncourt, they never say his surname in this, was like a, a dashing young knave, young rogue. He's like a teenage boy, basically. Like yeah. he's a, a, you know, uh, kind I of a... he's about 19, yeah. something like that. He is, he is young, maybe 21, but he's yeah. not very old. And he's he's got a lot of growing up to do. Then he gets made into a vampire and doesn't do that growing up. Ooh. And then the rest of the book, when you get to a certain point, is uh, is the Lestat in the modern era after Interview with a Vampire joining a rock band which mm. is the plot of the ill-fated not actually a sequel to this Queen of the Damned which we'll be doing in a quick review it's fucking terrible and then the third book was Queen of the Damned which is much bigger and thicker and they kind of like took and I think Dan Olson's made this uh, uh, comparison before they took a drop of Queen of the Damned and just dissolved it in a bathful of the second half of the vampire Lestat. Yeah, they literally took the Queen of the Damned, the character. That's the only bit of Queen of the Damned, really, that's in yeah. there. There's some stuff around, because Queen of the Damned... So it's like homeopathic <laughs> narrative. <laughs> Queen of the Damned, the Vampire Chronicles book, is a very long novel about the mythology of how vampires yeah. came to be law, in this Law, world. law, law. If yeah. you like law, that's your book. And it's, uh, it's framed around and told from the perspective of mostly not Lestat, but yeah. the occult order, like organisation, that's uh-huh. tracked the vampires through the, the, the years. Watchers? The Watchers? There's something the like that. Yeah. Something. They have yeah. interactions with witches as well, and it All was right. the... Basis for the spin-off series, I'm bored which already. is the Mayfair which I'm so bored. I know, absolutely. I'm so bored. Don't I care. Understand. Don't care. Like, especially since the, uh, uh, the examples of them in the Vampire Lestat, the Queen of the Damned movie, are, bad. are so... So very Like, bad. I just don't care about these twits. Um, and then there's also the Vampire Armand, which is about Armand. We'll get to him when we get to Armand. Um, but it's like sort of about, well, what about this mysterious Armand? Yeah. Then there was a, uh, the body thief? The What's body that? thief, the body thief is, um, okay, I'm going to have to really wreck my brains to remember this one. I wasn't wildly keen on it. I think Lestat ends up finding somebody who wants to trade bodies with him. Oh my God. He is starting to feel like he wants to be human again. So he swaps form with oh my god there's loads yeah there is now <laughs> keep going i haven't read past men not the devil okay interview with the vampire 1976 the vampire lestat 1985 queen of the damn 1988 and at this point it starts to be like i would actually recommend the vampire lestat as a good read like as like as uh, when you want to like if you've seen this film you want to know more the vampire lestat is where it's at Queen of the Damned, if you really love it so far and you really want to invest further... You'll know by the time you've read The Vampire Lestat. But that's where the rabbit hole really starts. Then The Tale of the Body Thief in 1992, Memnock the Devil in 1995, The Vampire Armand in 1998, Merrick in 2000, Blood and Gold in 2001, Blackwood Farm in 2002, Blood Canticle in 2003. She went, like, she she was just like, I'm just going to write and write and write. Prince Lestat in 2014. Prince Lestat in the realms of Atlantis 2016. Was somebody trying to piggyback on uh, Aquaman at that point? Blood Communion, a tale of Prince Lestat. You know, I kind of like... Okay, if anyone's a fan and you're on the Discord, and if you're not on the Discord, uh, like, check with me and, like, see if you can get onto the Discord. Tell us about these other books. I am actually kind of interested to know from the outside. Let's get to the film, shall we? 
reason that Anne Rice went in this direction, obviously from the sounds of it she had some serious demons to deal with. I think that's why this book, even though it wasn't particularly popular, and this film really feels deep, soulful melancholy. Absolutely. There it's... is, like, I did not know about that, the, that Anne Rice had lost a child until you said so just now. And now, like, the, all the pieces have just slotted together. Mm. And the, while Interview with a Vampire was focused very much on that, concept and that grief and that incident she did continue to use the vampire chronicles as an exploration of her faith she was raised catholic and became agnostic and towards atheism as she got older and that's sort of the the where the philosophy of the series leans and it was picked up by Neil Jordan, who uh, at the time had directed Angel in 1982, A Company of Wolves in 1984. I really like A Company of Wolves. It's folklore and folktales. It's, we're going to do a show on it. All I'll say is, see The Company of Wolves. We're going to do a show on it. It's a sort of a coming-of-age, bloody fairy tale and fable and uh, it, it, I really like it. One of the most memorable bloody werewolf transformations you will ever see. Mona Lisa, the, that's the one with um, Bob Hoskins. High Spirits? Oh dude, seriously? High Spirits? The one with Daryl Hannah and uh, Liam Neeson the, the, and Beverly D'Angelo, Peter O'Toole and Steve Gutenberg. My god, it's about Irish ghosts who like to I know, fuck. I've seen it. <laughs> I want to see it again. Yeah. Um, worth seeing. Imagine that scene in Ghostbusters where the ghost undoes Dan Aykroyd's belt. That extended into a movie. I mean, it's not all ghost fucking, <laughs> but ghost fucking comes into it quite a lot. And Daryl Hannah plays an Irish lady who was murdered by her husband, who's not all that bad. Yes, he is. He murdered his wife. Then we're no angels. The Miracle, and then The Crying Game, which, uh, yeah, we're, we're probably going to have to uh, uh, talk, uh, talk to um, some of our friends in the transgender side of the uh, uh, rainbow to, to see how that film has aged and how it's affected. I mean, it's, it's not... Uh, I, I would, not well. <laughs> not well would be a way. Not well would be a way. It certainly it wasn't received in the right way by the public who are like... Uh, gay panic, basically. Trans panic as a natural response to that's what the crying game's about. That's not, that, ne that is not necessarily what the film's about, but public interpretation and historical and cultural it's, osmosis is actually important. It's a strong flavour in it, and it is a little bit an exploration and a sympathetic one of that, mm. but... And it's probably the thing that uh, Neil Jordan's most known for... Aside from this, maybe. Up to and aside from yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, he also directed Michael Collins after this. The Butcher Boy, which I really like and no one's ever heard of. Uh, in Dreams, The End of the Affair, Not I, The Good Thief, The Actors Intermission, Breakfast on Pluto, The Brave One, Ondine, Byzantium, and Greta. So, yeah, uh, Company of Wolves and Interview with the Vampire are our two major recommends for Neil Jordan. And he was interested in the script. He wanted. He rewrote the book himself and did the script and was uncredited in the uh, rewrite and I think he actually did a, a splendid job of actually kind of distilling what was uh, what was in the book itself 
The rights to Rice's novel, this is from Wikipedia, were initially purchased by Paramount in, in 76, so shortly after the book was published. Before the book was published. Shortly before. However, the script lingered in development hell, development purgatory, folks. That's what we're, we're trying to seed that. It's not hell if you're just languishing there. Hell is apparently forever. Purgatory is more of a kind of a holding pattern with the rights being sold to Lorimore before finally ending up with Warner Brothers. Neil Jordan was approached by Warner Brothers to direct after the huge success of the movie, The Crying Game. Jordan was intrigued by the script, calling it really interesting and slightly theatrical, but was especially interested after reading Rice's novel. He agreed to direct on the condition he'd be allowed to write his own script, and he did not gain uh, writing credit. The themes of Catholic guilt which pervade the novel attracted Jordan, who called the story the most wonderful parable about wallowing in guilt that I'd ever come across. But these things are unconscious. I don't have an agenda. In other words, please don't complain if you feel like this is uh, taking a stab at Catholic guilt. With David Geffen producing, the movie was given a $70 million budget. It's actually listed at $60 million, so my guess is he came in under budget. Mm, feasibly, or they've adjusted that for inflation. Maybe. Uh, they don't tend to do that uh, on, Oh, on actually, what the hell am I talking about? No, it would have got more if that was the case. Yeah. Um, <laughs> inflation doesn't tend to go down. It says unprecedented for a film in the vampire genre, and I did some research into the contemporaries okay. for the uh, t- like how much you could ask for for a vampire film it is the most expensive vampire film at the time by a long long way they said 70 million it came in at 60 million question mark Bram Stoker's Dracula was the next one down 40 million dollars absolutely lavish film wow and that was Coppola yep so like Neil Jordan commanded more than the director of The Godfather and Apocalypse Now, (laughs) doing a far more well-known classic book. But I guess Dracula had been done several, many, many times throughout the uh, 20th century, and it was like, well, I don't know, you're doing another Dracula. Just happened to turn out to be the best version of Dracula. And we saw the BBC version of Dracula recently. Mm -hmm. And we're going to probably mention that when we do uh, the Castlevania Netflix series as well. There are some... Good ideas in there, but my God, what a complete pig fuck in the end. Uh, so yeah, forty million for Coppola's Dracula, Innocent Blood, directed by John Landis, mm-hmm. twenty million. Yeah, mm-hmm. that figures. Com- Cast of unknowns. Completely lost to history. No one remembers Innocent Blood. That was at the high end of vampire films. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, price. I'm just checking Innocent Blood because I said Cast of Unknowns. I just want to make sure I'm thinking of the same. You're forgetting thing. Robert Lozier. Okay. <laughs> I think Bill Pullman as well. Oh, okay. Uh, From Dust Till Dawn, which uh, came just a, just a little bit after Interview with the Vampire, 19 million. Mm-hmm. Vampire in Brooklyn, the not particularly funny Eddie Murphy comedy, 14 million. Fright Night, 9 million. That's the original. Lost Boys, 9 million. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, 7 million. Near Dark, 5 million. Catherine Bigelow knows how to ring a budget. Yep, she does. For five million, that was actually really well done. Vamp, that we saw again the other day. Great fun, three million dollars. Vampire's Kiss. I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! I love you! (laughs) Yeah, two million dollars for that one. And Werner Herzog's Nosferatu the Vampire, 2.5 million Deutschmarks, 1979 Deutschmarks at that. So, yeah. You could have just stopped at Werner Herzog. (laughs) So, yeah. 
Editor's note, we actually sat down and watched the Herzog version of Nosferatu uh, just a couple of days ago after uh, covering Interview the Vampire. It's really good and has barely a drop of blood in it. So you can totally do vampires without blood. You just need something else to go in its place. In the case of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it was comedy and law. In the case of Nosferatu 1979... It was philosophy and baleful imagery and existential crisis and a bleak sense of the historical and an amazing physical performance from Klaus Kinski, who clearly informed upon Gary Oldman's performance in the Coppola version. And Isabella Adjani's also fantastic, does this really intense performance. We far preferred this to Possession. It is not a significant budget, but I am remaking Nosferatu. Side note, by the way. If you go checking for best vampire films ever lists over and over and over and over again, you get Nosferatu. The uh, F.W. Murnau film, uh, The Silent One from 1922, with a very iconic um, Max Schreck sort of like going, in the uh, sepia tone, like, you know, the, the light and stuff. And, and that ends up number one over and over again. And I gotta call bullshit on all these lists. This film is practically unwatchable by today's standards. Like there, there's that like that scene of him creeping up the stairs with the shadow and the the like him creeping towards the woman. There are some iconic shots. It was most definitely incredibly influential on horror, on cinema, on vampire films. It's one of the most important films that ever existed. But best and most important are not the same thing. Sit down and try and watch Nosferatu now. It is a butt-numbing fucking god is anything gonna happen i would say ordeal also unintentionally funny repeatedly with its use of sped up motion it looks like benny hill it's a series of fantastic cinematic magic tricks but if the best way of watching it is nine minutes and 40 seconds of imagery that's not the best vampire film ever made in terms of visual art, in terms of the experimental nature of the photography and what they were trying to portray purely with the imagery, it's not a story. It's not a... It's Dracula a bit yeah. with, the, with the serial numbers filed off. Yeah, but it's not... I mean, it doesn't have any of the elements of engagement that a modern film would be portrayed as. Yeah. The, the modern film blends your script, your acting, your imagery, your colour, your sound, yeah. your music. It's all It all comes together to create something which is multidimensional. This is primarily about the photography. But these lists are there to to illustrate to like people who are like, I want to see some really good vampire films. Nosferatu should be on every single list. I am not going to dispute that at all. Like, it's like, see Nosferatu. But for goodness sake, why is that at the top? Oh, not just once. Like, I read like five or six lists and it was number one. I'm like, what are you talking about? Anyway. Because men are obsessed with the idea of being the first. The first makes it the best. And don't I deserve the best? 
Which means that the the original um, Scarface, the Howard Hawks film from 1932, pre-code with Paul Muni, is the best crime film that was ever directed, and even Scorsese would say so. There's a very clear, obvious, and simple reason why I object to this as a principle for highbrow critics to cling to. If film was already perfected in its opening salvo, what's been the point of all the films made in between? If they're just like, well, we can never be as good as the Lumiere brothers. No. Films are getting better. And they always have been. So, yeah, I mean, that gives you an idea, at least, that the uh, the, the 60 to $70 million uh, attributed to this by Warner Brothers, they knew they were onto something huge. And to facilitate that budget, they got Tom Cruise. Anne Rice originally was like, no, no way. Nil point. He is not my Lestat. And all the way up to the point where she actually saw the movie and went, nah, actually, he's really good. <laughs> but like up until that point, she was like, no. Do you know who I want? Julian Sands. Seriously? Yeah, seriously. Oh, my God. Yep. <sighs> God, he'd have been so bad. She was like, uh, um, she, uh, she said, Cruz is no more my vampire stat than Edward G. Robinson is Rhett Butler. And this casting is so bizarre, it's almost impossible to imagine how it's going to work. Other actors, how about John Malkovich, Peter Weller, you know, Robocop, Jeremis Iron, and Alexander Gudinov. And, oh, actually, she originally wanted uh, the French actor Alain Delon. But here's the thing, you're paying $60 million for this sumptuous gothic vampire film. You need an, not just an A-lister. Tom Cruise in this year was an A-plus lister. This was the peak of his career. Okay, looking at that list of people, mm -hmm. bearing in mind that Lestat is supposed to look young, she's talking about the people she had in mind while she was writing it in yeah. the mid-70s. Yeah. John Malkovich. I'm John Malkovich. I'm the vampire Lestat. <laughs> and it's 1992. Have you seen Jeremy Irons lately? <laughs> he was playing Scar that year. Way better villain for him to play. Indeed. You're so weird. You have, you have no, no idea. You have no idea. I'm also playing Scar. Due to Rice's perception of Hollywood's homophobia, her perception, her knowledge of Hollywood's homophobia, at one point she rewrote the part of Louis, changing his sex to female in order to specifically heterosexualize the character's relationship with Lestat. Wow. At the time, Rice felt it was the only way to get the film made, and singer-actress Cher was considered for the part. What the fuck? Dude. Come on! If I could turn back time. <laughs> A song titled Lovers Forever, which Cher wrote along with Shirley Eckhart for the film's soundtrack, got rejected as Pitt was ultimately cast for the role. So we're talking... She rewrote the existing book into a script wherein Louis was Louise. My goodness, and was it was going to be a mid-90s Cher. Got rejected as Pitt was ultimately cast for the role, though a dance-pop version of the song was released on Cher's 2013 album, Close to the Truth. Good to know. At least it didn't get a waste. And this one's sad. Originally River Phoenix, that massively talented young man that we talked about uh, when we did Stand By Me earlier this year, was cast for the role of Daniel Malloy, um, as Anne Rice liked that idea, but he died four weeks before he was due to begin filming. So Christian Slater was cast in his place as Malloy. He donated his entire salary to Phoenix's favourite charitable organisations, which is lovely. 
the film is a dedication to Phoenix at the end, uh, after the end credits. Uh, and 11 year old actress uh, at the time, a relative unknown. I think she may have appeared. She'd done a bit of acting briefly. before, but nothing. This was her first major yeah. role. Um, Kirsten Dunst was spotted by talent scouts and was the first girl tested for the role of Claudia. We have downplayed how fucking important Kirsten Dunst is in this film. Mm. She gives the best performance. It's amazing. She's amazing. This is the performance of her career. She's playing an impossible role. She's playing uh, effectively, uh, you know, for a lot of the uh, the middle section of the movie, a 37-year-old woman trapped in a uh, uh, 10-year-old's body. And then, like, a, nearly a hundred and 30-year-old woman uh, uh, trapped inside the body of, a, of a, a child. And so she matures psychologically, but she's an, a vampire who is significantly infantilized. And watching this again today, I made note of the fact that the Claudia character being there could have been really creepy and uncomfortable. I mean, she's really creepy and uncomfortable, but not in the way that you're thinking. Um, just her uh, her living with two men could have just really felt like, like dated immediately and, and like, well, th- this just feels seedy and horrible. And it's actually handled so deftly. There isn't any question at any point throughout the film that either uh, Lestat and especially not Louis have any designs on Claudia at all in that manner. They're effectively asexual. Into, like it's very romantic, but it's all about the kind of the, the the psychological relationships rather than the sexual side of it. Yeah, that is very in keeping with the lore of the Vampire Chronicles on a broader scale. The this is an oversimplified way of putting it, but fundamentally, vampires do not really have In this, any sexual desire. This version of vampires. Yes, yeah, sorry, the Vampire Chronicles versions of, of vampires specifically. They don't have any sexual desire, particularly for each other. The closest thing that they feel to it is the desire to feed, yeah, and that bloodlust. is all directed at humans. Yeah. So they connect with each other in in different ways, yeah. but they also bond very strongly because... In all Who else are you going to hang out with for 200 years? In all these years, the only thing we have is each other. Yeah. And that's really what this, this film is about, the relationships that endure over the years. But you're absolutely right. Those bonds become more familial. They're more mm. to do with intellectual connection and uh, we will travel with this person as long as we're pointing in the same direction but at some point they're going to go off and do something else so for folks who haven't seen the film uh louis the uh, character that is being interviewed played by brad pitt who is fucking gorgeous in this film and like he's got this flowing hair and i don't I, i don't Again, I don't understand how he wasn't all over the marketing, and I do understand why Brad Pitt would have been like, Tom Cruise ate all the pie on this film. Because he he begins as a man who's lost both wife and child, so he's in mourning, and he's listless, and he's walking around like a man who's already dead. And he indulges in, you know, drink and prostitution and gambling. And he's just, like, waiting for someone to kill him. And he catches the attention of Lestat, who's like, aha, he's feeling completely disillusioned with life. Now that, handsome chap, could be my bestie. So Lestat 
offers, uh, it, it bites him, and then comes back a few days, nights later and says, oh, hey, you're uh, feeling really thirsty, right? And uh, th- effectively offers him the choice to drink from me and live forever and be a vampire. Now, if you watch the film with your thinking cap on, you go, hang on a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. <sighs> you want to be dead, Louis. You can't stand existence anymore. So you select, you opt, when offered this, to continue to feel like this for centuries and not die. Oh, and there's also a side note, which is that you've got to kill to survive, which means you've got to drink blood. And you hate doing that. And you you live off the blood of rats because you actually have an ethical backbone. What the fuck, Louis? But, okay, so he didn't know that any of that was going to come about. He did know what Lestat was offering to turn him into, but I have a theory about this. Okay, and it ties on. into how Lestat approaches him. Because what Lestat does not do is approach Louis as a human, explain to him the whole vampire thing, and try to seduce him on that basis. We all have dreams. I know I do. Indeed. He pounces on and him first. He, 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 get, he pounces on him with his vampire pyramid scheme. Yes, indeed. <laughs> But this this is the thing. Normally, when you normally when you look at other vampire movies, mm. the vampire approaches the human and says, "I'm immortal and it's awesome. Wouldn't you like that too?" That's a direct quote, by the way. There's no point in Lestat offering that to Louis because at this point, Louis doesn't want immortality. He just wants to be gone. But what he has to seduce him with is the intensity of the moment of death. Get he gets him close to being dead so that Louis can go, oh, fuck, this is actually not what I wanted mm. at all. And then he grabs for the lifeline that Lestat is offering him, which is, I can actually turn you so that you won't die. Yeah. So it's what, what he's been looking for in his human grief and bereavement. It's a malaise and he doesn't feel anything anymore, so exactly. he's looking to he's feel. He's looking to feel something. Right. He thinks what he wants to feel is death so that all of this will go away. But when Lestat shows him what actual death is going to feel like, he goes, uh, okay, maybe not. Mm. So he takes the immortality and then he gets, there's, there's kind of a reprise of that where he gets the experience of the intensity of that moment of death again, because this time Lestat does actually drain him to the brink. But prior to this, he's had this period of, of reflection and Louis is a very reflective character, which again is unusual for the way that vampires are portrayed, especially when they're being held as the villains. Because we get to see this whole story through Louis's eyes and because he is an observer, because he is detached, because he is... Armand says later on, and we'll, we'll come to this, but the thing about him being the spirit of his age, it's not so much that, it's that he is capable of observing his age. He's... His era. His era, yeah. I mean, he even says at the beginning when he's he's introducing himself, he says, yeah, I'm 24, I'm younger than you are, talking to Daniel at this point, mm. but things were different then. I was a man at that age. And he's, he's able to keep the shape of this human life that he had. He doesn't remember the details necessarily, but he can remember the shape of it. And that means he can compare it to what came after. Mm. And he can do that about the world around him at large. This had a big influence on Let the Right One In, clearly. Mm, absolutely. But th- that means because he can reflect 
reflect on that pre-vampire existence and he has that detachment, he doesn't, again, unlike a lot of vampires who are portrayed as villains but they're trying the, the writers are trying to make them a bit sympathetic they lament the loss of their humanity they agonize over this ex, this innocence that's gone mm. and while louis does to a degree he doesn't as much as you might expect because the part of humanity that he remembers is grief and misery yeah he only goes back to he he doesn't want he never wants to be a human again the only thing that he regrets is that ultimately being a vampire also ends up being grief and misery. Mm. And again, it's the fact that he can remember it that means he's able to compare them. But he, Lestat coming to him and saying, I have, I have seen your grief, I have seen your pain, I can give you some freedom from it. That's what he finds appealing. And he has this period in between the, the initial attack and Lestat actually turning him where he can think about it, be aware of what he's going into. It's not something that is forced on him. He actually gets that moment with the sunrise at the end of his life where he gets to say, to sort of look at the human world for the last time and say, this is the thing I'm letting go of. Am I happy with that? And ultimately his decision is yes. Mm. They play off the. I mean, these two are actually they're like sun and moon. They're very different in temperament, which accentuates and exacerbates how entertaining Tom Cruise is. So while uh, Louis sighs, Tom Cruise is there just having a ball. I think this is our first Tom Cruise film. Can you think of any others? In all these years, we've never touched upon his movies. Did we do? War of the Worlds when we did the Spielberg season. Ah, uh, no, well remembered, yep. And Minority, and Minority Report. Report. Okay. So welcome back to the show, Tom Cruise. <laughs> like, he's an aristocrat who hates other aristocrats. He really enjoys luxury. Yeah. And although we don't find out much about that here, it's in the Vampire Lestat, it's partly because he grew up in an era where if you weren't in luxury, you were surrounded by shit. Mm. And he kind of voices his philosophies and talks about how there's quite a bit of, you know, is there a God, is there a heaven, is there a hell? I don't think so, is the conclusion of most of the vampires, because it feels like they'd have been cautioned by someone at this point. An angel would have come down with a fiery sword and said, hey, demon, just so you know. And Satan would have appeared to them at some point. They don't say this out loud, but there is definitely that... Uh, there's a speech Armand gives about, you know, I have never learned the secret that would damn or save my soul. They kind of have to make their own moral code. All they've got is existence and the parameters of their physicality. They can't be in sunlight or they will catch fire and explode and die. They don't care about crucifixes. They, um, the stake through the heart thing is is put aside. Um, uh, Louis refers to the Bram Stoker's Dracula as uh, the vulgar fictions of a demented Irishman. A little bit racist, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I feel like if you shoved a stake through his heart, he wouldn't like it. Mm. You can certainly cut vampires' heads off and they'll die. They can't drink dead blood; it weakens them to the point of death. They also have to stop drinking from those who they kill because they'll be carried away by the human's mortality. It's very poetic, but seems like a florid way of explaining something scientific. Also, they need to go uh, to sleep in coffins. Now, I feel like 
The coffins thing is an affectation. They could technically sleep in a cupboard, it's just that it'd be really uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, I think It needs the, to be a bed with a cover. I think that the coffins thing is an affectation, yes, but also a practicality. If you think about the era that they're in at that point, it's the late 1700s. You think a human is going to interfere with a coffin? You put yourself in a coffin, no one's going to touch you. Yeah, there's practicalities and difficulties with being in a coffin, not knowing when the sun, like, not knowing there whether is that. it's light or not. Like <laughs> no one's peephole in the bottom, so you know when the sun's you, gone you, down. You you open it a crack, and it, like because we've all woken up way too early, especially when we go on vacation. We're like sort of, oh, okay, is it? Oh my god, I'm on fire! Okay, right. <laughs> Jet lagged vampires exploding into flames. If left, only right, someone would invent pocket watches with little de with glowy uh, displays. Mm, yes. So, maybe a sundial. But then they have... Oh no, I can't use sundials! <laughs> but the, a moon dial then. But then they haven't had to worry about that up to this point because jet lag isn't a thing because if you're crossing mm -hmm. from one side of the world to the other, you're going on a ship and you adjust to the, the rhythm of the daylight as you go. There's, uh, there's some vague... So really reliable body clocks. There's some vague suggestions that vampires have different powers that they don't go into, and I like that they don't go into it, because it's law, and that's boring, and a lot of the powers are kind of more... Uh, they, they sort of play into the symbolism of what's going on, rather than being, ah, because this person has this power. Yeah, they also play into the, you can't trust Lestat to say yeah. a damn thing that's actually true. Lestat claims to read minds and tells Louis that he specifically preys on villainous people, wicked people, because they taste better. And they're easier. And they're easier. Uh, which, you know, ultimately, uh, because Louis can't read minds, um, he kind of has to believe Lestat. Absolutely, on. he's got no way of verifying At the But it helps to sop his conscience in the beginning. At the beginning, when Lestat first bites Louis, he, uh, they float up to the rigging of this, uh, this moored ship, and it's, it's, you know, really dramatic. And I'm like, can Lestat actually fly? Because he never actually flies after that. Or is this symbolic? Mm -hmm. Or can he actually fly? Because later on he does kind of climb the walls and when Louis like shoves him up against the tree it does seem like they're kind of defying gravity. Yeah. And Quest Santiago can certainly levitate yeah. later on. Stephen Rea like walks on the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it kind of doesn't matter. Because like I said, that's law. That's X-Men power stuff. And not that I don't like X-Men law, but when you start the powers are not the point it's how those yeah. people respond the twilight to series got really bogged down in powers there is i mean this movie so influenced twilight but it was like let's just take the sex out and turn it into just sexual tension i mean there was no sex in this either <laughs> i was just gonna say ironically let's take the sex out it's uh, sexual tension for teenagers but like the, the, the volturi like the the vampire um Vatican in Rome, basically, yeah. are very, like, there's a feel of them in Armand's theatre troupe, who seem to appoint themselves as, as like, the vampires in charge because they're the only ones they know of, as far as they Well, concerned. that's the thing, but they, unlike the Volturi, they are very nihilistic, but yeah. we'll talk about them later. Yeah, we'll come to those in a minute. She's not dead. You're in love with your mortal nature. It was just the one thing that could bring you peace. You peace. All seeing eyes were meant to give them detachment. The girl is that. They take her, Louis. End that hunger. No. It's a coven. A coven, It's your coffin, my love. Enjoy it. Most of us never get to know what it feels like. Why do you do this? I like to do it. I enjoy it. 
Take your receipts, taste pure things. Kill them swiftly if you will, but do it, for do not doubt, you are a killer, Louis! What's that one? It's a coffee. Well, so it is. You must be dead. I'm not dead, am I? No. No, you're not dead. Not yet. You finish this, you finish this now! You finish it. Save me from him. Save me! Oh. Let me go. I can't die like this. I need a priest. My friend is a priest. He'll hear your sins before you die, unless, unless I make her one of us. No! Take her, Louis. End her suffering and yours. No. <laughs> So Lestat seems to uh, gravitate towards um, women, you know, uh, attractive f floozies, basically. Like, you know, he doesn't particularly go for, like, there are no sharp, intelligent women, I suppose, until um, Madeleine yeah, comes along. It, there's no, again, like I said, the adult women in this have no agency and really no their view on the world is not incorporated into Lestat's way of looking at things at all. The women that he interacts with are food. They're cheap, they're disposable, and he can act towards them, or in his mind, he can act towards them with complete impunity. He can be cruel, he can torture them, and then just walk away without having to think about it. He tends to go for sex workers because there's a straightforward transactional relationship there where they think they're getting something, whereas he's actually going to get something else. And he kind of torments them. There's one particular uh, poor girl uh, at one point who he seems to deliberately traumatize to get a reaction out of Louis. Indra Ove and her performance is fantastic. Oh, yeah. It really yeah. is. But it's it's so uncomfortable and it, it does You know, she's like, oh fantastic. I finally found a handsome guy who's willing to pay uh, for it, rather than these, you know, probably grody dudes covered in uh, syphilis. <laughs> but it it evolves out of the the first girl that they feed on together at, at the tavern. Mm. Lestat drops coins on the table after she's already dead as yeah. they walk away. It's really he almost seems to have contempt for them. Yeah. And it's really nasty. And it's one of the things that makes this a horror and not just a gothic melodrama. Because ultimately, the the monster in this is in them. Yeah. That's the point. And uh, I, I noted they mostly sent, seem to just do this... Oh, repeatedly, and the fact that obviously Hollywood's horrendously homophobic suggests, like, if they'd brought in dudes and gotten, like, sort of romancing them in the same way and given them lines, there's this one fop who's off, just slightly off camera and is, like, the paramour of this aged aristocratic lady and gets bitten just off to the side so that it doesn't look too gay. They do not romance men in the way that they do women. 
I think the homoeroticism Louis, comes from between the two of them. Yeah, Louis gets like one line where he refers to the fact that Lestat often goes after a young woman at the start of the evening, and then for seconds he likes to go for a gilded, beautiful youth. But it's very it's one line. Yeah, and it doesn't it it doesn't emphasize the fact that Lestat feeds on humans. It it really doesn't matter gender presentation, whatever he will mm. go for, whoever is gullible enough and vulnerable enough and available enough for him to go after them. True. However, the restrictions of the filmmaking process do play into the presentation of Lestat's behaviours. They couldn't show them romancing dudes because the audiences would go, sorry, this is too rich for me, sorry. Like, he can kill women, but if he starts kissing a man, good God, Lord. Heaven forfend, folks. This is uh, what I call the unlifestyle because it's uh, Lestat going, hey, Louis, isn't this awesome? And Louis going, no, no, it is not awesome. (laughs) And they, they subsist like this for a while. The black population who are effectively. Louis' slaves, question? Yep. Yep, Louis' slaves. Louis' slaves uh, are getting really upset about the fact that they're dragging their dead from the river on a uh, a morning basis, and they're being preyed upon. The subtext here is, uh, it's pretty heavy-handed anyway, but they don't even really start to lay it on thick in terms of of how much uh, white aristocrats would prey upon black people in America in those colonial periods anyway. Is it a post-colonial... It's... Post-colonial but pre-revolutionary. I think it's set in 1791, so technically speaking, the Revolutionary War is done with. Mm. But the... So we're in Hamilton territory. The the settling of... Whether it's to do with the fact that Louisiana brought in like the United States part of things a little bit later on. I'm not entirely sure. We're not going to go into the Louisiana Purchase, folks. No, I don't know American history that well. But there is a point in the story where Louis specifically says, we are now all Americans, Mm. and Lestat hates it because he's such a snob. He can't bear the idea of everybody being equal. Mm. And um, Elliot Goldenthal uh, performed the uh, score for this. And this, I actually think, was like his last... Like, he had a short period of being the sound of the 90s, and I looked into his uh, uh, um, composition history. And he did around about this time a few years before Pet Cemetery, then Alien 3, then Demolition Man, then Batman Forever, then Heat, and this. And those are some just amazing scores. And this was the peak. And everything afterwards was kind of downhill. I feel like, you know, I scored Batman and Robin. It must not have gotten him that much work. He has a very uh, a sound peculiar to the 90s, but the soundtrack, the score for this film, is haunting and melancholy and beautiful, and there's choral stuff in there and sad long cello strings and 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 violins and um, organs and there's this brooding menace and and at the same time lament throughout and it's 
it really, like, without this score, it would not be as much of a film as it is. And this was your um, Lucky album? Um, yes, this was the album that I would put on in my college room when I was trying to pull. Okay. And there's one track. was pretty lucky. And there's one track, I think it's number four, called Lestat's Tarantella, which goes. Which you'd have to leap across and go, oh, skip, because yeah. it's not very sexy. It's like track three or four, so I, you wouldn't get very far mm. before that kind of. But that's the thing. Upset the atmosphere. Lestat's instrument in this movie is the harpsichord. And whenever Lestat's, like, being charming or funny, Golden Tile goes and like he's sort of just strumming along on this thing. All the levity, all the dark humor is attached to Lestat there and then and with this harpsichord. So whenever the tone is right for you to sort of laugh at dark humor, Golden Tile helps you by bringing in that instrument and then it disappears when Lestat is killed. I love the harpsichord. It's not used anywhere near enough in uh, in films, and whenever it is, I appreciate it. Doctor Strange, y'all. Listen to the score for Alien 3 without watching Alien 3. That's from the fiery climax. Elliot helps us through devastation and turns what should be catastrophe into an operatic triumph. Golden Tal has moments of genius, and this, I think, was one of them. But yeah, back to the slave population. They are getting upset. They start performing voodoo rituals to ward off. It's, it's actually neat to see what they're doing is not, oh, watch out for these people. They're doing black magic. It's like they're trying to defend themselves mm, in absolutely. with the old ways that they know. And they're, they're like, we are very aware that there are demons in our midst and we are fucking sick of it. And eventually they're the ones who grab the pitchforks and the torches and go, fuck it, we're going to burn this mansion down and uh, no no louis starts the fire they're standing there watching it going what the hell are we supposed to do now yeah but they come for them as a crowd a, a mob to go right yeah enough of this preying on us yeah. and louis but the house is already on fire and louis burns the house down which pisses lestat off in this in this kind of yes. darkly hilarious scene perfect, perfect. just burn the place burn everything we own I was living in a field like cattle. You thought you could have it all. Oh, 
Shut up, Louis. And and Louis sort of shouts at the slaves, "Go away! You're free now." You are all free men. Run! Go away from this place. I'm sat there thinking, you got to give them the paperwork, dude. They can't just go. Each and every one of them needs to be certified, given the paperwork, and also given like we are way before the Civil War here. Mm. You need to get them safe passage north. So basically, saying you're all free means fuck Fuck all. all. They are going to be rounded up and at best auctioned off to be slaves to other people and landowners. They're all going to be held responsible for murdering you and burning down the plantation and their fates will be terrible. So cheers for burning that shit down, Louis. Nice job. Yeah, thanks. But partly and ultimately, this is presented this way out of naivety on the the writer and the director's parts. But it also quite neatly emphasises how naive Louis is. Not only is he ignorant of the vampire world, he is largely ignorant of the human world. This is his let them eat cake moment. Effectively, yeah. He's Let them go free. He's been brought up wealthy in a world where the wealthy are a tiny proportion of the pop of the population, but they hold all the strings. And very different from now, really, one might say. But the... It's the foundation to which our society is built upon. Indeed. But the loss of his family, the grief and the bereavement that he's experiencing have kind of put him in this state of being not really fitting anywhere, Mm. of being this sort of, I, I can't live in this environment of privilege anymore because it it means nothing to me it's all tasteless but i also can't exist in the world that's been given to me because i don't know anything about it i don't know how i fit into that and one of the reviewers of the book the original interview with a vampire novel was reviewed in the boston globe and the reviewer suggested that Rice's vampires were symbolic of the walking alienated, those of us who by choice or not dwell on the fringe. And that's how they are all portrayed, but for varying reasons. They all have their own backgrounds and they all have their own philosophies, but they do all sort of live in this corridor between living and dying, evil and good, embracing life and fervently rejecting it. Again, they have being removed from the code of humans and have to write their own, which is confusing and alienating. And the fact that you can change it at any time makes everyone uncertain. Mm, Yeah. And the people that you are stuck with, in a way, are the other people who are in that alienated section of society. And they are not all there for the same reasons. You are not automatically going to get on with all of them. Some of them will drive you nuts. Yeah, that's the thing. At one point, um, Lestat says of the the, the poor um, prostitute that uh, he actually torments to to get a rise out of Louis, make her into one of us. And Louis's like, fuck no. And like just the, the logistics of having her around them all the time like the, the, it, she would not complement their dynamic it would be uh, crazy so effectively louis burns down their current situation and staggers off and there's a plague going on in new orleans and he finds kirsten dunst who is like 10 at this point? 10 or 11, yeah. 10 or 11. Kirsten Dunst, the actress, was 11 when yeah. she filmed it. Claudia, the character, is how old? In the book, she's five. Five fucking God. It's, that's hardly ever relevant because she grows up mentally so 
in such short order in the story. Yeah. And because it's a text medium, not a visual medium, from the dialogue point of view, you are inter interacting with an adult woman from that point sure. on. Sure, but it's still problematic. But at the same time, Anne Rice had this demon to face. Mm, indeed. Oh, that changes everything. My God. Um, She's Madeline in this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, Louis feeds off her, which effectively infects her, and then Lestat uses her as a bargaining chip. Because uh, this this is the equivalent of a married couple going, this is over, it's fucking over. Let's have, Let's a, have kid. a baby. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And it's, it, it's the way it's played out as well. It really emphasizes the fact that Louis is not a man of action, like the complete opposite. He is... He's not at all at peace with himself. He loathes his own impulses. The the fact that he can't escape this world, and in particular Lestat's cruelty, all conspire to make him resent what's going on around him. But he does nothing. He doesn't attempt to stop any of it, really. That scene that you were just describing with Indra Ove, where he keeps telling Lestat to stop, but, but what point is he going to stop? As Lestat says, she's reached the point now where I either kill her or I turn her into a vampire. Yeah. I can't just leave it there. And obviously that's the point. He's not doing it out of any kind of sympathy. Have some sympathy and but there is, there appears to be a breach in Louis's compassion. He feels all this guilt. Um, he he doesn't like inflicting pain. He resents it when Lestat does it. But he can't reconcile that with his own need and desire for survival in the form of you're going to have to take blood and therefore you're going to have to kill people. He can't act in a way that feels right for him, so he doesn't act at all. He just sits there and either watches or leaves, and that's what happens at this point. He runs off, mm. and everything that Lestat does next happens off screen. Audiences don't like passive protagonists who things happen to and they just kind of take it. And whenever uh, he actually reacts, whenever he does something, he reacts with absolute fury. It's chaotic, it's destructive, it's often impotent, mm -hmm. and only once does it actually accomplish something that is ultimately a good thing, but it's too late. But even then, it's too late, and afterwards he just feels empty again. That's the yeah, thing. Yeah, we'll get to that. But, uh, yeah, Louis has a rage inside him, and he displays it repeatedly throughout the film. But most of the time, he's lamenting. So, Lestat turns Claudia into a vampire with Louis's assistance? He brings... No, Louis basically drained her to the point where she's going to die. Mm. So, he goes and fetches Louis, brings him back, and says, I can... Here she is. You didn't kill her. But he turns her, Lestat turns Claudia into a vampire. Mm. And then the film is like the film's been dominated by uh, Tom Cruise at this point, and now the film is dominated by um, Kirsten Dunst, who performs as this kind of cherubic, kind of happy, 
happy vampire child who has no moral compass and uh, is trained by Lestat to be a predator and uses her the fact that she's a child as a, uh, a ploy to get sympathetic people so she can feed off them. And we should hate Claudia for this, but we pity her almost immediately. Also, she's funny and her interactions with Lestat are funny as he... Again, she's infantilized by both of them, but especially Lestat, who uh, treats her in a, in a... He kind of dotes on her and spoils her, and spoils her in various different ways, specifically morally, because, like, if she'd learned from Louis, she'd be... Uh, she'd be stuck in place, not knowing what she'd to do. Be constantly questioning herself, and and she doesn't have at this point. She doesn't have the the mental maturity to do that. Mm. Really, she is a child ultimately, and that's why her she is cruel in the way that Lestat is cruel. But she's not malicious. Mm. She's playing with them like a cat playing yeah. with a mouse, and the the deaths that she is responsible for are framed throughout this sort of montage section, so as to be off-screen or funny. Yeah. So the... Again, darkly humorous. Exactly. We get a lot of harpsichord. Yeah. <laughs> Louis says this thing about she's... Uh, they Together they finish off whole families, but we don't see them attack the Clock. family. We see them... We don't see children suffering. Exactly. We see them entertaining the family, and then we see the whole family being brought out in coffins. We don't get to see the bit in between. Whereas in uh, Let the Right One In, and especially in Let Me In, the remake, Matt Reeves does not let you forget that Chloe Grace Moretz is a predator who who will rip you to shreds. Exactly. It is a lot easier to have compassion and understanding for something that someone has done than to give approval for something that they are doing. Yeah. And Again, this film is really well edited. Like it th there's moments where they're talking about things and they happen quietly like with no like like sort of on the screen when they talk about the uh, the, the theater troupe later, uh, they just like you see parts of the troupe but then it's it's in the middle of a conversation. It's it's actually very artfully done. So time doesn't pass in that same linear fashion, which makes perfect sense since you're watching vampires. Yeah. And on the rare occasion that you actually do see Claudia being responsible for somebody's death directly, it is framed in a humorous way. Yeah. That primarily, I would say, the best example of this is her music teacher, because he is constantly telling her off and smacking her hand with a stick because Never she's not house. doing the exercises correctly. And then you again, you don't see her bite him but he just falls forward onto the piano and I pointed out at this stage that being a vampire and needing to feed a lot is at serious odds now in terms of evolutionary like for a biological organism that needs to feed like a lion in a society where murder is frowned upon mm. and having to cover up bodies with forensics and and uh, you know CCTV basically it's making being a like being Spider-Man became more and more complex between the 60s and now. Yeah. Being a vampire, I mean, I guess we'll watch Jared Leto in Morbius. Do they show up on CCTV? Because this is going to become quite fundamental. <laughs> but the again, in the Vampire Chronicles lore, the very young vampires need to feed quite frequently. Yeah. As in, not young like Claudia, but young as in they've transformed fairly recently. The older they get, the less they actually need to feed, and it eventually becomes something that they're doing occasionally to keep themselves 
active and mobile because if they don't feed for like decades at a time they start to become very stiff and stone-like and eventually if they don't feed for hundreds of years they will turn into what look like marble statues mm. is that how akasha the queen of the damned exactly. ends up as a statue yeah huh. so it's a it's a self-imposed decision to not it can be feed. sometimes sometimes it's just that they can't feed because of circumstances so they end up turning into stone how come that didn't happen to lestat uh, after like a 130 years or so. Well, in part, I would guess it's because Neil Jordan hadn't read Beyond Interview with the Vampire, uh, but mm-hmm. also, uh, as we discussed... In the books, about- doesn't he like, spend most of the time buried? Like yes. he's he's in a coffin, and then, and then like he hears metal music, and he's like, oh... Oh, I like this. It's even better than harpsichords. Yeah, but he and that was written in the mid '80s, in- so it's like White Snake. Here I go again on my own, going down the only road I've ever known. In the grand scheme of things, he hasn't really been down there for that long. And again, you've got the fact that when he's in the swamp, he's drinking like crocodiles' blood and things like that. In the when he's in the cemetery at the end of this. As I said to you, I suspect he's been feeding on animals this whole time. Mm. Again, this is law. This is like the mechanics, which is actually not as interesting as what's like philosophically happening here. So Claudia ends up going into several rages throughout the film because after 30 years pass, she wants to be a fully grown woman with everything that a fully grown woman has and realises she absolutely can't. Well, she can't understand why she's not changing. She mm. can't. And more to the point, it's this, this is something that children go through anyway. You are raised in an environment where your parents are in charge mm. The there's a part of your brain that says, but that's okay because someday you're going to be like them. Mm. And she realises at some point, as you say, about 30 years down the line, that she has been cut off from that. Yeah. And she's mentally 35 years old exactly. at this point. So, yeah. And to, uh, Lestat, to a degree, torments her, not in a way that you'd torment an adult, but in a, like an abusive parent teasing their kid. He not... is a classic narcissistic parent with yeah. Claudia. And he's shitty to her. He's not horrendous, but he's... He's mean-spirited at times, like again, like a cat, mm. and she slashes at him repeatedly at times. They, they clash, and eventually, Claudia decides, you know what? Louis, I feel safe with. Louis, I know, genuinely loves me. Lestat actually takes joy in hurting me, and Claudia decides to fucking kill Lestat. Remember what we said about not drinking dead blood because it draws vampires to the point of human death. Well, she uses that as a trap. So she kills a couple of boys and then keeps their blood warm with laudanum and then Lestat drinks from them and goes, oh my God! And then she slashes his throat and he bleeds everywhere. And the effects work here was done by Stan Winston's Creature Shop. And Neil Jordan was like, I'm not sure about Stan Winston's Creature Shop. They're well known for Terminator 2. They're well known for Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park. I'm like, what the fuck do you mean I'm not sure about Stan Winston's Creature? That's like saying, I'm not sure. Marvel. I'm not really down with this Spielberg guy. I mean, yeah, is he reliable this, as a producer? This Scorsese. I mean, is he a, is he a safe bet for... <laughs> yeah, uh, it's basically... His point was, you work on animatronics. A lot of this is in makeup. But the makeup and the, uh, the, the creature effects and the blood effects and the slashing and the ripping and the, and the hurting the and the shoving... Biting. 
is really fantastic in this film. Like again, like I said, the, the gory nature, like when it comes spilling out, it's operatic in its nature, and it's very uh, uh, theatrical, as, uh, as Neil Jordan uh, said. The I think the worst slash best effect uh, was the veins. Mm-hmm. They all have china white skin and little blue veins painted on their faces just to, to make it feel like that they're, they're like porcelain dolls or their skin is translucent you can see right through them to see their veins and like that's that's really good like you know they, they must really put a lot of effort into that they achieved this by having the actors hang upside down like bats for 30 minutes at a time so that the veins in their heads were bulging out so that they could then be traced by the makeup artists every time Every scene for months on end. No wonder Brad Pitt was fucking miserable. One presumes except uh, Kirsten Dunst, because you wouldn't do that to a child. Suggestion. Take a photograph of their face when they've got the makeup on and replicate it as best you can. What the fuck? (laughs) I'm, I'm always like... If you can do this one thing that's going to require a lot of effort and, and danger and you talk it through with your actor or your stuntee or, or your team, and you, you get it done. But if it's like, we're going to do it again and again and again, you're then like way up, even more than just the individual time. Do we really have to do this every time? The effects used for Killing Lestat uh, and, and just having, like, it really sells. And then when he comes back after living, uh, well, existing in a swamp for a while, and they've planned to move, he's suddenly a threat. He's suddenly a you kill. It's like Diabolique, the uh, the uh, French um, ghost story noir murder mystery thriller. Uh, and so yeah, he's 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 back to uh, um, to enact revenge, and Cruz gets to really be intense. And bearing in mind. How Claudia killed Lestat was particularly gruesome. After he drank the laudanum-laced dead blood from the boy booby trap she laid for him, he sinks to his knees in a daze, begging for help, and she cuts his fucking throat, leaving him to bleed out on the rug. It is a calculated hit she performs. Not a crime of passion, premeditated to get him out of their extremely long lives. So when his wormy corpse comes back one night, he is justifiably pissed off. There's life, these old hands still. Not quite furioso. Moderato. Potable, perhaps. How could it be? Ask the alligator. His blood helped. Then on the diet of the blood of snakes, toads, and all the putrid life of the Mississippi. Slowly, Lestat became something like himself again. Claudia, you've been a very, very naughty little girl. And then he explodes 
<laughs> and and Claudia and, and Louis run from this incredibly shameful thing that they've done. They effectively murdered their companion. And I do feel like they could just have said, you know what, Lestat, we're out. And left, rather than actually killing him mm. in the first place. I feel like Claudia was driven to it by rage and she wanted to, to just punish someone for her fate and the fact that Lestat laughed about it and teased her mm. allowed her to focus all her rage and resentment on one of her two fathers so that she wouldn't direct that fury upon her remorseful father because they are both responsible for her fate and Claudia knows this it does emphasize that sense of being in a very dysfunctional at best, abusive at worst family, where you are, you have it drilled into you so much that you are nothing without these people, mm. that you, the, the, the amount of inner doubt that you have to overcome to get away from them is matched only by your sheer terror that it doesn't matter even if you do, they will come after you. Yeah. That's understandable. If there was a feeling that Lestat would stalk them no matter what, I mean, him playing that ploy with Louis to say, we've got a new daughter between the two of us, stay for her. Absolutely. That was a, a manipulation. Mm. And it shows that he knows Louis's inner workings well enough that this would, Claudia would give him something to yeah. focus on. To evoke the daughter that he lost. Mm. To give him the family that he Misses. lamented and missed and, and to, to an existence that he could be comfortable with. But it never really feels like Lestat would stalk them and kill them. Like, to that end, while he is monstrous, Lestat is also pitiable. Mm. Yeah. And he's immature and he really needs to do a lot of growing up and he needs a lot of life experiences and it really feels like this movie did actually need a sequel about Lestat coming to terms with actually being kind of an anti-hero-ish decent person and finding a way in life. Mm. But he is, he is passing on this terrible legacy of himself having very limited experiences of the world and having this feeling of abandonment that he's trying to compensate for by collecting these companions and he's created these two children effectively who he then proceeds to deprive of experiences and connections beyond him because he's terrified that they'll leave him again he's abusive and clingy and uh negligent and emotionally manipulative the whole time and mean again like he is mean-spirited but he's He's charming and funny, so we kind of forgive him. But here's the thing, and this is this is one. And of also, like he's like he dies horribly, and we're like, oh, mm. like we really miss him after this. This is one of the things that I actually think I I wasn't sure how well this would stand up. It, I I don't think I could have verbalized enjoying it as a teenager that this was one of the elements of it that I liked, but it it still stands today that. The appeal of Lestat, at least for me, is less in, oh, but he's hilarious and charming and funny, and therefore it's okay that he does all these terrible things. It's not at all. And the, the appreciation of him as a character comes more from, he does all these terrible things, and it comes from this place of isolation and fear. Yeah, and he's multifaceted. It's, it's an extremely subtle performance that Cruz puts with it. Yeah. 
that you get that in spite of the fact that that's not really in his dialogue. It comes through when he's angry, but that's rare. And this was notably one of the few times when Cruz played a villain. I mean, Lestat is a villain. He, he is, is the antagonist yeah. in the film. He antagonizes our yeah. protagonist. And he is a villain from a humanistic perspective. He is absolutely the bad guy. Mm. And I feel like it was a, a weakness of the film theatrically and in terms of the script, as the way it was written, the way the book is structured, that Lestat then disappears from the story. Like, for audiences, I'm fine with it, but for audiences, they were like, oh, now we're stuck with this guy. So Brad Pitt must have gotten all kinds of you're boring yeah. from that. But it's really important that he is gone because what goes on in this act two of the film couldn't take place if yeah. the stat was still there. Very true. Let's call it act three. Act one is Louis and Lestat. Act two is Louis, Lestat and Claudia. Act three is Louis and Claudia. Now that they're free of him, they get to kind of travel around. And there's, she's an artist, and so she she draws with charcoal. And there's there's a point when she draws a, a naked woman, and it, again, it feels like there's this longing in what she's doing. And then she wants to see the world, and she wants to be among the people. Technically, like they could keep themselves completely isolated, but they want to be part of. In the end, they settle in Parisian life, and it's like nearly a hundred years after the film began. So they're in sort of late nineteenth-century France. They live very well. One assumes they steal from the rich people they kill. Yeah. Um, and they then finally encounter other vampires. And uh, there's this uh, one vampire who barely says anything uh, directly in conversation named Santiago, played by Stephen Ray, who's in every one of Neil Jordan's films. He's like his Robert De Niro. Turns up and kind of does this mime routine to Louis and sort of goes, oh, I'm going to mimic you and mirror you and Cirque de Clune. And then walks upside down and takes off his hat and he's all ostentatious and it's like what the fuck is going on and thankfully then Armand turns up and is played by Antonio Banderas now in the books Armand is like a young blonde haired kid yeah? Uh, I can't remember if he's blonde but he is certainly young he's about 17 yeah. and Banderas must have been in his early 30s at, at least point. yeah and he's gorgeous and cherubic and cruel like even like way more than Lestat yeah and pompous Tom Cruise was at his absolute peak here and Brad Pitt was just sort of reaching his flame and Banderas was just about to be unleashed in Desperado the uh, Robert Rodriguez um, sequel slash remake of um El Mariachi, and he was a couple of years off of playing Zorro as well, and then the feline version of Zorro, <laughs> which he became more famed for. Uh, hello? Who dares enter my room? I'm sorry, I, I hope I'm not interrupting, but I'm told you're the one to talk to about an ogre problem? You're told, correct. <laughs> but for these, I charge a great deal of money. Would this be enough? You have engaged my valuable services, Your Majesty. Just tell me where I can find this ogre. 
It's it's like we had a brief ellipses without the stat, but then suddenly Armand comes in and he's got this dark philosophy and he's sort of very sort of ruminating on the years that he's spent. He's several hundred years old and he believes himself to be the oldest of his kind. He isn't, but he has he kind of presides over this troupe of, of uh, theatrical vampires who perform macabre acts in the crypts below Paris um, to a, a, an audience of uh, somewhat ghoulish humans who uh, want to see dark theatre performed. And in doing so, they literally murder people in front of the eyes of the audience who want to tell themselves this is all fiction. Yeah, they are. The, the Theatre des Vampires is based on a real theatre in France called the Grand Guignol Theatre. <laughs> And Grand Guignol means great puppet, I think. And the idea was that they would show ho mostly horror plays, although they did alternate them with comedies uh, throughout the night. They would usually There's show dark sort of humor five or six short shows each this. night. Yeah. And but but the the idea behind it was that people would be drawn into these very heightened emotional melodramatic pieces that were often about panic and insanity and hypnotism and it wasn't necessarily... And there's a preoccupation with death itself exactly. they, as they a were conceptual very, entity. They would use a lot of, of makeup effects and things that would often cause the audience to feel sick and they would play on this as a marketing thing yeah, and have chopping off limbs the, and heads and such and, yeah exactly but the it's effectively like this is horror movies mm, this absolutely. was absolutely. horror movies it's, it's shock theatre of its and day it and it's like totally it, it predates that as well like Titus Andronicus they, is a horror movie exactly that's what they were building on things like Titus Andronicus it's, it, this was not a new phenomenon but to focus it in this mm. one place it was very popular from uh, it started in 1897 it was very popular until sort of the maybe 20s, 30s, and then it started to wane a little bit um, and eventually closed. Yeah, because of film. 60s. We could see all this stuff on film and the, magic tricks. But part of why they said, we can't do this anymore, was the Second World War. Yeah. They basically pointed at the Holocaust and went, we play on the fact that people can't see this stuff in real life. The world has effectively done us out of our business. And the... The Theatre des Vampires is, is kind of playing on this that, as you say, it presents these horrific scenes and themes it all around. Humans are really terrified of death, mm. so we're going to bring it and put it in front of you. Allow you to dabble in it, in yeah. a safe environment. Precisely. It's, it's contained. It's not necessarily safe, but it's contained. You know it will start when you walk into the theatre mm. and provided you're still alive at the end of the night, you get to walk out. Oh yes, Senor, take me. I adore you. But we're still You wet your turn. We're still trying to do it. This is what Game of Thrones was playing on. That people wanted to see the horrific and terrible things that we can't see in real life. Specifically transposed in uh, the relatively safe environs of a fantasy where people normally die, but then they don't go over the top with it. And it's like, yeah, but this fantasy fucks, there's rape, and all kinds of betrayal and horrendous torture and murder. But part of the problem with that is that if you are bringing it into people's homes every day, they will get numb to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it creates movements that then end up with nowhere to go because there's no air. Exactly. The the, there's, no, there's nothing good at the end of this particular 
pathway unless you can diversify and re-explore in yeah. a different the, context. The whole point of Grand Guignol Theatre is it was short stories. It was it was little self-contained narratives mm. that would last maybe 20-30 minutes, if yeah. that. It, it wasn't intended to be these great big long epic tales. Eventually we have to live again. Yeah, absolutely. You you you're it's part of a cycle and if you make it continuous then the winter becomes eternal, and people can't live with that. And uh, cyclical creatures. The performance that Louis and uh, Claudia witness uh, features a woman who definitely didn't volunteer for this, um, being <sighs> stripped naked in front of the audience that she's panicking and begging for help from, and then after they play all the bad cops, uh, these the sort of like ghoulish vampires in Santiago sort of taunting this woman. Armand turns up looking like the devil and is all sexy and calming and kind of a no pain, no pain and seduces her, then bites her, then holds her up as though to say we have killed her in front of you and then lowers her down into this pit of fucking rats. Leeches. leeches. They look like leeches at this point. They're, they're, they're covered in these like glistening, almost sequined robes, like monks' habits. And then she just gets swallowed up with this fantastic vertical shot of this naked woman just prostrate and being feasted upon. I'm sure that awakened a few kinks in a certain, a few macabre kinks in a certain amount of viewers. Though the vampires are positioned more like carrion, more like rats, vermin, who live in these sewers, feasting upon a surface dweller. Ironically, that crane shot the audience in the theatre wouldn't have been able to see that of angle. Course. But then they close the <laughs> curtains in a kind of a, yep, you just saw that, folks. And they leave her clothes on the front of the stage just to remind them of what they just saw. Have fun sleeping tonight. Exactly. But here's, there's, there's a thing that just struck me watching it today, actually. What he sits and observes, and Claudia is fascinated by this. She's like, oh, it's vampires pretending to be humans pretending to be vampires. And I think she says, how avant-garde. But for Louis... Again, this is exactly what he's been doing with Lestat this whole time. Watching the cruelty, watching the torment, and doing nothing. And now he's surrounded by a whole theatre of people who, who are, are also doing, doing nothing. nothing. Yeah. And then Louis talks at length with Armand, who, you know, again, gives this like really intense, seductive performance because he wants Louis to come over to him. Basically, the theatre troupe are a bunch of twits and he knows it. He can't get a good conversation out of any of them. But Louis, he really likes. So you said something fascinating, which is like uh, about the the spirit of the age of, of what Louis represents and well, what, what, elaborate on that. What does Armand see in Louis? What Armand says he wants from Louis is, he, he says he's surrounded by these, these vampires of the theatre, they're decadent, they are, they've isolated themselves in this theatre, they are no longer in contact with what goes on in the outside world, they're entirely preoccupied with what happens in their own four walls. He wants Louis to, the way he puts it is, make contact with the spirit of the age for him. The Armand is, yeah, Armand is like 400 years old. He seems to want to go back out in the world, but he doesn't really know how to go about doing that. I was confused by the Elizabethan oh, times. Exactly. <laughs> and so he, what he says Let me to... ask you, are we still wearing ruffs that make us look like <laughs> birds who swallowed a plate? <laughs> No, it's the cuffs now. Okay. 
Um, but he he says to Louis that that he's he epitomizes his age, and Louis's response to this is, "But I." I don't connect with my age. I'm at odds with everything. I always have been. I don't feel He's right Generation X. anywhere. And Armand says, that's what makes you the spirit of this age. Now, like you said, we're talking late 1800s here. Mm. So that's the, the feeling that Armand is having about the world at this point, that everything is is kind of weird right now. Nothing's in the right place. Nothing feels right. And he feels that Louis epitomizes that. And so that's why he wants to connect with him. But here's the thing. Every age is like that. Vampires, even outside of what Anne Rice created with the Vampire Chronicles, vampires represent the outsider. If you're writing them sympathetically, they represent the counterculture. The point of them mm. is that they are at odds with the spirit of whatever age they're in. Whenever you picked up a companion, Armand, they would represent the spirit of the age. You're looking at this the whole wrong way, dude. <laughs> But you, I feel like I could get a conversation from. Well, indeed, yes. <laughs> this is the only real evil left. Yeah, but Armand is, he's not like Lestat in the sense that Lestat's personality kind of was this very, I want to say he's like this in-the-moment kind of guy, but not really in a fun way for anyone else. It's like it's fun for him. He's an id. But yeah, he's he's just... Gobbling up. Uh, yeah, he's an id uh, and Pitt's a super eager. Yes, and Armand Louis. is not either of those things, really, but he's kind of a... a He's like a, he's always like a super super ego. He's like Freud sitting there going, "Ah oh, ha ha, yes, all you little people," and and that's he he can't. His perspective is too lofty. He's distant, exactly. Yeah. He's too removed. Um, and at this point, I think almost Armand becomes the super ego for, to Lestat's id, and Louis becomes this ego in the middle, being pulled backwards and forwards between these two ideals. Mm. Now, Louis doesn't actually seem particularly drawn to Armand. No. He's repulsed by this theatre troupe, but Claudia becomes fixated on the idea that he's going to leave her. Yeah, well, her, the way she puts it is, you would you would leave me in a moment for Armand if he beckoned you. But ultimately, I think what she's detecting there is that this is a very blunt and cruel way of putting it, but Louis is getting bored in a way that only immortals can. Armand even says most vampires do not have the stamina for immortality. I think we can all get bored. Well, exactly, but... but I mean, think about it in terms of, like, the, the, the infinite abyss of time. If you have to spend all of that... Yeah, I'm starting to feel a bit right now. We're in the middle of a pandemic, for God's sake. Oh, right. I've been in lockdown for approximately 17 million years. <laughs> I thought you were talking about my explanation. No, no, no. <laughs> this is the best part of lockdown. Doing this stuff with you but is fantastic. I love it. But the <laughs> thank you, darling. But the the whole sort of we're we're immortals and we're in a world that if we're not careful, it doesn't change. I know, but if it's allegorical in... for our own malaise. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But but that that being the whole, if you're with the same person for long enough, eventually you're not bringing anything new into into your life. Mm. Hence the whole this isn't working. Let's have a baby. It's a really bad idea because then you're involving someone else. But I do get mm. that whole sense of needing to reinvigorate what's happening and that. That's what Claudia senses. And again, it pins on to this 
resentment of the fact that she can't change. Yeah. She can't be someone new for Louis. And so she has convinced herself that as soon as he gets the opportunity, he is going to leave her for someone yeah. new. Uh, I also pointed out at this stage that it became like an Ibsen play. I was thinking The Doll's House. Um, yeah. And you said this is more like Tennessee Williams. From the perspective of my husband's actually gay and he's going to leave me for some guy. Mm. And... There is definitely that feeling about it. Like, like um, I, I literally can't be the thing that you want. Yeah, yeah. But there is also an element of Claudia has been unable to progress. And part of that is the fact that she's been frozen as a child. But part of it is she can't progress with Louis. Mm. She needs new people. She Part of the... the them leaving Lestat and what she does on their way to Europe is she becomes obsessed with research about vampire myths because she's trying to find our kind, other vampires. She needs a wider social circle than than just the two of them as well. Someone should have given her Queen of the Damned to read. She's like, oh, so much lore. This <laughs> yeah, is exactly oh, what I wanted. They're all idiots. Okay, Brilliant. that's fine. Okay. We'll, we'll just stick with Louis cool. then. I'll continue um, writing my own moral code. Yes, but she tries to... Plus, it would have taken her an eternity to read. That thing, you could beat someone to death with it. It is pretty thick. <laughs> but in response to her fear that Louis is going to leave, her reaction is, fine, I'll go and find my own new companion. Yeah. And specifically, the person that she goes out and finds is a replacement mother. Yeah. Which is the one thing that Lestat and Louis were never able to give her. Yeah. Her mother's already dead when uh, Louis finds her. And she's yeah, she died in a plague. In a plague. And Claudia and was basically going to die as well. Mm. She's friggin' decayed. And Lestat, again, darkly, hilariously, to Lestat's Tarantella, dances with her corpse. Mm-hmm. The woman she finds is Madeleine, who I believe works in a doll shop? A doll maker's? Uh, I... Or dressmakers. I, I can't remember which one. It, I don't think it's the doll makers. Yeah. But no. she, she works in a shop anyway. Um, and from the sounds of it, when we get to meet them again, uh, Claudia and Madeline have been talking for a long time about what it's like to be a vampire. And Madeline has made the informed, mature decision, yes, I would like to be a vampire. And Claudia demands that Louis do this for her. She can't, she can't give Madeline enough of her blood. She's too small and too like physically it doesn't contain enough vampire blood mm. I'm like how much fucking blood did or you? it's it's possible because when we see them later on Madeleine's already been bitten mm. but I can't see any marks on Claudia it's possible that Claudia just couldn't drain her enough because mm. you have to drain them to the to point to the point of, of death. death right yep no yeah you're right and so she's like please do this to, for me Louis before you leave me which is this really sad anguished scene because Louis is isn't at this point it doesn't feel like Louis wants to leave her it's just they both feel that things are changing yeah and Louis is the kind of person as we've established up to this point he is not a man of action but he is a man who will stand there and wait for something to happen and then yeah. pick up the consequences so he does this and um, Madeline starts dying one of the things they don't mention that is in the book is you shit yourself all your bodily fluids yeah. <laughs> drain out of your body at that point it would have been less sexy it would have been an, a lot less sexy but yeah it's mortal death which basically means all the fluids in your body go yeah you don't need them Anymore. I mean, they do the opposite of Don't that. eat before you get turned into a vampire. <laughs> I shouldn't have had that Taco Bell 12 taco special. Oh, my God. 
blood. No last meals. We don't recommend that. They do the opposite of that mm. with the, or the, the early X-Men Wolverine thing where um, Louis, who has drunk some of Lestat's blood early on, uh, as he becomes a vampire, there's this fantastic moment where a statue, as the camera pans around it and a pillar passes between you, the statue's eyes open and look at you and then close again. And it just, it's, I see the world through my vampire eyes and it feels like there's secrets and there's a real feeling of, like, the, the effects that we see in the film are symbolic of greater magics going on that even the vampires can't quite explain. And there's a, a hypnotic feel about yeah. that. I love it's, that. It's also something that can very much be taken as, and again, this is when we're talking about people who, through no choice of their own, are living on the fringes, but people who are neuroatypical who have heightened oh senses God, yes. heightened awareness of things not always to their benefit um, but that it is very difficult to explain to somebody who does not perceive things in that way. To, to have to sit there and go, no, honestly, I can hear the electricity. No, you can't. No, I really can. <laughs> But yeah, the blood disappears from Brad, Brad Pitt's lips, and when Claudia turns into a vampire, her hair goes from plague scrag to beautiful, beautiful ringlets. ringlets. Yeah. And it's like and glossy <laughs> sheen, and it's like being a vampire suddenly makes you look super awesome. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously it's symbolic, but at the same time, being a vampire does make you look super awesome. It does. No vampires wandering around looking like shit, apart from Lestat when he's been when really weak. Exactly. Yeah. But the the interchange between Louis and Madeline just before this happens, he is saying to her, you don't know what you're asking for, mm. but she points out to him that she has lost a child yeah. and that ultimately, to her, Claudia is a child who can't die yeah. and that's what she wants. She is so hung up on her own grief and he recognises that and connects with that and ultimately that's what makes his decision. I feel like an extra few minutes with Madeline would actually have benefited this film a oh, little totally. more. Just yeah. to really have conversations, just to establish... Like, her and Claudia talking, mm. her and Louis talking, just to establish who she was. Because immediately, and this is after Louis says, what happened in that room was the last breath of my humanity. Like, I've done that for you, and I am now... I'm, I'm done. Like, that's his, that's I think... my humanity gone. That's his, like, he didn't have to say that to Claudia. Mm. That was actually quite cruel yeah. and, and, and self-indulgent. All she... he had to say was... I want you to be happy. Uh, yeah. And yeah. if I can't be with you, then at least this lady will give you what, what yeah. you need. But what Claudia then says to him, and again, this just hit me this, this time watching it, he refers to her in that conversation as my love. Mm. She then very specifically refers to him as father. Mm. She is underlying, I am your child. It is actually part of the natural order that I leave you, mm. not that you leave me. Again, she's uh, she instigates change in a way that he can't. Exactly. Um, and then uh, the theatre instigate a fuck ton of change. This is the bit that would probably upset quite a lot of people, and rightfully so. It's intended to do so. The vampires... Uh, Santiago has picked up, because he can read minds, so that thing about Lestat being able to read minds might actually have been the case, uh, that there's a name Lestat, and then he mentions in passing that they have but one crime among vampires, which is the killing of our own. They turn up, swarm them, cackling, like they are just having the time of their lives, and drag, kicking and screaming, this little girl, this woman who is turning into a vampire. She and hasn't even quite finished. 
finished yet. And who, by the way, wasn't even born when Lestat was killed. Yep. Uh, and Louis dragged them to the catacombs, locked Louis in an iron coffin, brick him up, Edgar Allan Poe style. Armand stands off to the side going, oh, this is bad. Mm-hmm. And Indeed. It's worth noting, by the way, that there isn't only one crime because Armand says to Louis, mm-hmm. it's forbidden to make one so young when he first sees Claudia. Right. So ultimately, Lestat has also committed crimes against vampirehood. Schmerschmidden. <laughs> Yeah, ultimately, when you live for four or five hundred years... you got to have a code, but at the same time, the punishment they choose here is... I think this Disproportionate. is... Disproportionate. I think this is maybe the, the worst, most upsetting thing you could put on film. They lock Claudia and Madeline in a deep, deep well... And the uh, it's it's late at night, and then it comes around to the daytime, and they are struck by the sun, and it was very deliberately you, um, evoking uh, the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima and the bomb on Nagasaki, and they burn to death, screaming in agony, and it is the most upsetting of scenes. It's it's like Terminator 2's Sarah's dream sequence, well, only this is real. Winston uses a lot of the same effects yeah. because the way Madeline and Claudia's bodies turn to ash. statues of ash is similar mm. to how... Uh, and they fly apart like leaves. Yeah. It's so abhorrently cruel and upsetting and tragic and sad and... Unthinkable, and you know, while Claudia has has been a vampire for all this time and ended that many lives, this should never really be done to anyone. And it's it's the execution of a child on screen. I, I, like fuck, I, I, there, there is what a handful of films that do that, mm. and very few of them are seen by a, a, a wide audiences. Yeah. So it's a very strong flavour. I think, but again, the context that you put into the. Uh, beginning of this story Anne Rice's child was taken from her by leukemia an incredibly unfair unthinkable greatest nightmare of scenarios so I can understand why this would be something she would have to put in Mm. to confront the other element of this that I think makes this execution feel so unfair is that you could almost understand it if it was humans who'd got hold of them. And ultimately, that Claudia and Louis and all of them have done multiple wrongs against humans. That would almost feel like a a rebalancing if it was humans that killed them. But the fact that it's this pack of sadistic, howling vampires who do worse than what they've done, night after night after night, it also makes it feel uneven. Mm. And that brings an element of discomfort to it that uh, exacerbates the, the horror of what we're actually seeing happen. You murdered this child unfairly. You murdered this child and you had no moral right to. You can't claim any kind of superiority. There was also no that. trial, no questioning, no nothing. Absolutely. It's 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 abysmal. And uh, Louis is finally let out um, by Armand who breaks through the wall uh, too late and finds the 
remains of Claudia and Madeline. And again, there's this, it's, it's a heartbreaking moment of physical performance. Again, I feel like Pitt was very cruel to himself in terms of what he brings because he's covered in ash at this point now and his he's wearing those vampire contacts and he looks empty. And Armand rescues him and you know, says that he... Does he say, I tried to stop them doing this? Or? No, no. He says, Louis basically, he, he brings him out and Louis' immediate action is to go and find Claudia. Yeah. And Armand says, you can't save her. And I, I think he says something like, I only wish to save you. Mm. Um, and there's a big question mark over whether Armand allowed his troupe to go and kill those two, thus freeing up Louis, or whether he encouraged the troupe to go and do this. I'm gonna lean hard on the latter, because he asked Louis, stay with me, and Louis went, nah. And so he was like, right, well I'll take away your reasons for not staying with me, and then you'll be so sad you'll need the nearest shoulder to cry on, I have two shoulders. I, I feel that Armand definitely orchestrated this in the most cruel of fact, the most selfish, cruel of machinations. And he obviously, if, if it was his plan, then he, and if it was the, the vampires themselves, then they, they are throwing brute force at this. Because remember, when they turn up at, at Louis' apartment, they're not actually expecting Madeline to be there. Mm. That massive crowd of people is basically there to handle one little girl. Mm. And Louis, who was well, yeah, but the point is just fight hold back. him back. Yeah, the, the, the troupe are smug and grinning as Louis walks towards this horrendous scene. They know what he's going to see. They don't try to stop him. They just smirk at him. They are as evil as it gets. And his decision in the end is to come back while they're asleep and kill the fuck out of them. And I've, this is a really important moment in the film, just to rebalance it in a way of like, okay, you're vampires, you live for blood, and a horrendous violence has occurred, and an injustice, this is a retribution. It won't fix anything, but it will take this evil off the map. And Brad Pitt's running around his long hair all over the place and with a fucking scythe, which by the way, they use during the play and is actually a live blade. Like he's using it to chop off the hands of dummies, but it cuts people's heads off, cuts vampires clean the fucking half. And Louis uses it like he's been practicing scythe like a pro with death himself. I, I don't know, he used to own a plantation. It's entirely possible that at some point he used to cut his own crops. It's entirely impossible that he cut his own crops on a plantation peopled with slaves. Well, yeah. There you go. Mm. But the, Louis is the pissed, way... and this is the one time when his fury actually accomplishes something, which is to take these horrendous people off the map. Where he falls short is he doesn't rip Armand's head off. I know it was you, Armand, and it breaks my heart. Rip! 
just rip his fucking head off and kick it down the road like a soccer ball. Yeah, he just leaves him and is like, you're going to have to live with this. But the Because Anne Weiss was like, well, this is a good character, I'm going to keep <laughs> this gonna one. keep him for later. But the, the way the revenge is enacted is quite fascinating because, again, there is fury, but it's very cold up until the very end when he comes up against Santiago. All of the, the pouring of the yeah, oil... Yeah, he's stalking around the place, the, setting everything he's on fire. Just, he is totally blank. He's, he's controlled again. He's rigid. He's almost deadpan. There's no emotional response until he actually has a live vampire to go up against. And that's when that anger flashes forward. Mm. It's a righteous infliction of retribution manifested by an appropriate agent. Yeah. Nemesis. Indeed. And it's worth bearing in mind as well, he is... He, he says he lost the last little bit of his humanity when he turned Madeline. I would actually say he lost the last little bit of his humanity with this act because he is effectively... Um, in, in losing Claudia and Madeline, he is having to relive the death of his wife and child. Yes, but in doing so, he also rejects all vampire kind. Effectively, he cuts off his own roots with this scythe. These are the only vampires he found. They killed his family, and it's a my dead family. It is a my dead family, yes. But the context... It's like my dead family would be Mad Max, the original Mad Max. His wife and child are horrendously killed it at the end of the film. And then he goes on a roaring yeah. rampage of revenge. It doesn't make him a badass. It gives him a fleeting moment of being enlivened. Mm. And then he is empty again. Yeah. But again, it doesn't bring us any joy. It's no. just a relief. It's just a sense of, well, these fuckers are, are gone then. That's good. And they really suffer and burn and scream. They and totally do. But I refer you to Harley. Psychologically speaking, vengeance rarely brings the catharsis we hope for. Yeah. Are we ready? This, by the way, when the first time I ever saw this movie was on a plane and it was... With these little video cassettes, like Hi8 cassettes, if you remember them, like little tiny videos. And I put it in, stuck it on, and I, the first thing I saw was the overhead shot of the, the ashes of the smouldering ruin that Louis had left. And he was describing in narration him living uh, on beyond this point for another century. And I was like, oh, this is engrossing. And then the film ended, I was like, what the fuck? And then the person who was watching it before we hadn't rewound it. And I was like, fine, I guess I'll rewind it then, but I know the end. But yeah, he then lives for another century without meeting vampires on his own. And again, all of this misery, all of this pain, his sense of regret, the what makes him beautiful that Armand says, is that he still has a soul, he has that regret. He says he doesn't have a soul, but clearly he does. It's what, it's what makes him not just a predator. Mm, he deliberately chose to still feed off the blood of animals yeah. rather than humans. What I said before about there seems to be a breach in his compassion because he can't act to prevent any of the terrible things that he sees going on around him, but he can kind of control himself and hold himself back from all of that. Mm. And it's possible that if the vampire urge, the, the this desire to be this complete... The thirst. Id, yeah, the, the hunger and the... I mean, he des the way he describes it, it's almost like an addiction. Mm. The, the energy that it takes to hold that back is possibly what then makes him look like this inactive, inert, rigidly controlled... 
person. Mm. It's and it, it again it kind of underpins the idea that Rice's vampires are human but louder. Hmm. They're very intense. Everybody's very intense. Which goes with the sexiness. Absolutely. But they all deal with all the same kind of things that humans do, just to a greater degree mm. and for longer. They're also Highlanders. Like, this yeah. is Highlander. Absolutely. Obviously, it's several, it was written before Highlander, but, mm. uh, but uh, Highlanders are vampires. I am Louis Dupont de Lac of the Plantation de Lac. Let us fuck! Except yeah. that we don't Except do that. Except we don't do that. <laughs> um, and then after, uh, there's this wonderful sort of like showing you cinema. The, um, the, the, is there Nosferatu? Is actually in the film? I didn't, there, I didn't yes. imagine that. Yeah. He uses it as an example of the silver sunrise. Yes, yeah, the silver sunrise because he's first, he's seeing cinema slowly, but you know, go from that to Gone with the Wind and then go from that to My Beloved Blue and then you got Superman. And then he, it was in 1970, no, he goes to see Tequila Sunrise, because he's like, oh, there's going to be some sunrises in this no, one. there isn't. Aren't there? <laughs> I don't know, maybe there are. Is there tequila? Yeah, Anyway. so. Uh, and then in New Orleans, he detects, he smells Lestat and finds the desiccated remains of this still-functioning corpsified version of Lestat who, having drunk dead blood, then had his throat cut, then got tossed in a swamp. The big dummy of Tom Cruise, the ah thing with its throat cut, was probably given to him on the last day of filming as a present from Stan Winston. He's like, oh, thank you. And Nicole Kidman was like, I'm putting this in the passenger seat when I drive around LA. Um, and then when he came back, he went on fire. And then... Like 170 years passed, nearly, and, and he's just sort of sat in this house feeling terrible. He doesn't even understand what police spotlights no. are. No, I mean, I the the incident where they where Claudia kills him and they burn the house down, I think occurs sometime around the 1830s. Okay. So, so it's, I, I it's a slight said, modifier of the number of years, but the principle is still the same. Yeah, originally I said, was this what caused the Great New Orleans Fire? But it wasn't. There was, that was a It was lot the earlier. second one. No, no, no. There were, there were two in fairly quick succession, okay. but they were a, a couple of decades before right. this happened. Okay, well, either way, please don't set fires in New Orleans. It's still very flammable. It's very flammable. <laughs> yeah, and I thought... That could just be like lazy writing, or not lazy writing, but just like I don't quite know what to do with this character, because there's so much Lestat could have been doing in all that time that uh, Anne Rice just said, "Oh, he just kind of chilled for all that time. Like he had only existed for a while before he met Louis as a vampire, and then he spent most of his existence just Hidden on his in own a in, a, in a house or in a tomb or just like a desiccated ruin of himself." Again, feeding off of, of stray animals and things. But he could have gotten himself back on track way earlier. Mm. So you can read into that, that on some level, you can read into that. I'm not saying that is the only reading. On some level, Lestat is punishing himself. Yes, that the rejection of him by Claudia and Louis has layered on top of the rejection by Magnus, who taught him nothing, just turned him and abandoned him, and has left him feeling, what's the point? I, there is, I keep getting pushed away. Mm. There's no point in going back out there unless I want to reconnect with somebody. And why would I? They'll just leave me. So he kept himself fed just enough to stay alive and not turn into a porcelain statue, but not enough to thrive. And 
meeting Louis, he effectively he's asking for forgiveness here. He's saying, I'm sorry. He says, "We I shouldn't have made Claudia, but there's so many other apologies that he needs to make at this point, but can't put into words. He's this, he's a derelict and he's a shell and a husk. Yeah. Also, if the one thing he's apologising for is the one thing that actually gave Louis some love for a time, mm. then that's shitty. You're not understanding the circumstances. Yeah. I'm sorry for tormenting Claudia. Yeah. Indeed. And tormenting you, but specifically tormenting a child. Ultimately, there's there's not enough apologies that he could make. Basically, he says, will you take me back? And Louis is like, ah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's understandable. It's, it's like, look, This illustrates that Louis has become self-possessed enough to go, I'm going to make my own decisions. I mostly watch movies. Yeah. I understand that. I go going to the cinema alone and watching movies. Cool, thumbs up. Um, and and you know, ultimately, he he decides he doesn't need anyone and is going to continue. He could have walked out into the sunrise at any point, but he decides to keep going and feeding off of animals. And then he finishes his story, and Daniel, played by Christian Slater, is like, "Oh, well, then make me into a vampire." And he's like, "Dude, were you even listening?" We have been here for hours. Me telling you how fucking terrible my existence has been. This just what a a curse being a vampire is, and, and the malaise, and the just the the existential crisis we are permanently afflicted with, and the assholes I have had to spend fleeting moments of my acres, my oceans of time with. And you want to be a vampire. <laughs> like, the, the level of disappointment in, uh, in him at that stage. He chooses to become angry to try to frighten Daniel at this point so that Daniel won't pester him. Mm. But effectively, he's rejecting him. And that then leads uh, to the, uh, the, the closer, which is that Daniel runs away in, in, in fright, gets in his car, starts listening to the tape, and then Lestat, we are... Always I'm, check the back seat, dude. Just... <laughs> Lestat was like, okay, I'm going to get into the back of this Mustang and wait. Like fucking Marty McFly. And uh, then, uh, you know, bites him on the Golden Gate Bridge as the car's moving, and then starts driving the car. And then as Christian's kind of bleeding uh, in the passenger seats. I feel better already. <laughs> Most of all, I longed for death. I invited it. A release from the pain of living. Oh, Louis, Louis. Still whining, Louis. Have you heard enough? But it was I've had to listen to that for centuries. And as you said, it was like 32 years. 150 odd years ago. Which I believe compounds my this is an exile and a punishment and a limbo and a purgatory that Lestat threw himself into. So he's had to put up with that for centuries because he's had a version of Louis in his head yeah. saying this over and over every night. It's a great kind of quirky ending because like, the film could just end on a kind of a morose and that's Louis. He had a horrible life and it continues. But with Lestat coming back, it's, it's, it's kind of a ha-ha, here's the one you like. 
to the audience. So it and and Guns N' Roses do this cover version of uh, Sympathy for the Devil, which is actually pretty good, and it ends on that roguish, darkly humorous glee, which I feel rescues the movie from what could otherwise have been a morose conclusion. We get the morose conclusion as well, but it does stay true to both those characters. Yeah. Yeah, and this is a slightly different take than how Daniel's story continues in the books, which if I remember rightly, and it is a long time since I read them, I believe he, Louis refuses to turn him and he basically then goes off looking for any vampire that will turn him and ends up finding Lestat. And I think there's a there's a kind of a period where he keeps him hanging on as a familiar and he's like, I will, I will, but not yet. <laughs> So exactly you like to me as a human. exactly like what we do in the shadows. He's mowing Lestat's lawn and going, any day now he's going to turn me into a vampire. Any day, any day now. Come on, when's it going to happen? When's it going to be my time? But that doesn't happen in the film. It's it's a it's a great movie on its own. It uh, if it was going to have a sequel, it needed to have a great sequel. Yes, it what did it, not. What it got was Queen of the Damned, and again. <sighs> If you're not on our Patreon, this might be just the month to just try out. <laughs> Throw in us five bucks and listen, like download as much as you can. Just, just, just for an experimental month, download as much as you can of our quick reviews, and just listen back to the movies we've been watching and talking about. When we talk Queen of the Damned, it's going to be a sculpture. Let me say that right now. And we did indeed record 40 minutes on Queen of the Damned with music by Jonathan Davis of Korn. It's maybe the most 2000s movie of the early 2000s. Again, if you're at the $5 level, you can download and listen to that in just over a week's time because we have to finish our season of Halloween shows where we talked about three, four, five, six, and 12. And a huge shout out, as always, to our top tier $15 sponsors, who will be enjoying all of this bonus stuff plus more. And they get a special name check every episode. Thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And here's a clip from that Queen of the Damned show. There's no coffins, there's no fear of sunlight, and later on when Akasha, like he drinks Akasha's blood, she goes, right, because of my blood, the light won't sting your eyes no, anymore. No, no. She says that you can now walk in the daylight and soon it won't hurt your eyes anymore either. The point being that at this point it is stinging his eyes. Yeah, it'll... Which is convenient. It's a, it'll, It stung Claudia's eyes a little bit when she exploded. Oh. I would just like to say, <laughs> as a taster of what is... 
come in terms of my perspective on Queen of the Damned, the movie. Stuart Townsend. Mm-hmm. Stuart wait, Townsend. Just wait. Save it. Save it. Save it. Was the original casting mm-hmm. for Aragorn. For Aragorn. Yeah. And they went, this ain't working out. Off you go. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, Peter Jackson had him for like 45 minutes and went, oh, heavens, no. Save it for the show. <laughs> Save it for the show. It's going to be good, folks. Um, so anyway, uh, if you're uh, already on our Patreon, uh, $5 or above, we will see you there. This has been us talking about Interview the Vampire. I am so... Like, you know, I, I've really wanted to do this for a long time. I know how important the uh, film was to you. It it became important to me over time as well. And it's honestly become influential. It's it's definitely going to, like, there's going to be elements of this in a, uh, uh, a book that I'm writing uh, right now called Castle of the Moon, which is a vampire story. And uh, it's going to have very strong influences of this and Bram Stoker's Dracula and Castlevania. And I, I, I like that I'm, I'm pulling from a pool of, like, the cream of vampire fiction, as, as far as I'm concerned. Just, just cinematic and televisual and video gaming and just, just the good stuff. So I'm very grateful that this movie exists. And if nothing else, it's a classy vampire film. We saw The Hunger the other day as well. I looked at how much The Hunger cost. And it said how much it made, which is never a good sign. <laughs> it didn't make much. Tony Scott's The Hunger. I didn't originally like it. Um, when I saw it when I was a kid, I was like, I don't even understand this. They're not, they're not even vamping out. I now, like, I get it. I get The Hunger. And um, I, I also, I would rec- that would be my recommend as well as uh, Interview of the Vampire for something to go see. See it in a, a good uh, quality print if you can. David Bowie is really good in this. It was always one of my favourite vampire films. It has since been eclipsed by Only Lovers Left Alive, right. which has a very similar yeah. tone. Only Lovers Left Alive is like is, is another fantastic, clearly influenced by this, uh, story of what it's like to live for this long and, and your companions being vampires. And... Yeah, I, I, I feel like this has done good things in terms of... It's, it's spread of influence out into... Because after this, there were some extremely good vampire movies made as well as the ones that I listed earlier. Okay, so we will see you next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
myself I'm a man of wealth and taste I've been around for a long, long year Storm many man's soul and faith I was around when Jesus Christ Had his moment of doubt and pain Me, damn sure the pilot Washed his hands and sealed his face <laughs> Pleased to meet you Hope you guess my name Oh yeah But what's puzzling you Is the nature of my game I stuck around St. Petersburg When I saw it was a time for a change I killed the Tsar and his ministers And a stage screaming vain I rode a tank, held a general's rank When the blitzkrieg rained and the bodies stank Have some sympathy and some 